This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Greetings, microorganisms, humanoids, cyborgs, and robots. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on display politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode features an interview with Emily Ackerman, a doctoral candidate in chemical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh and a disabled activist. Emily will talk about how she got into chemical engineering, her advice for disabled students who want to be scientists, her experiences last year on campus with a delivery robot, and the importance of accessibility in the design and development of technology. Are you ready? Oh, wait, we go. Emily, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Yeah, thank you. So, Emily, why don't you introduce yourself and share uh, anything you like about your background? Sure. Um, so, my name is Emily Ackerman. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a sixth-year PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and I'm a chemical engineering uh, student, but um, I do systems biology uh, in my research. So it's a little bit of biology, a little bit of math. Um, I have some more like robotics and control theory training. I'm a little bit all over the place, um, and everything I do is computational. Uh, as a disabled scientist, I love being computational. Um, and yeah, so I'm a grad student. That's kind of my life, but um, I spend a lot of time um, with my cat. I love my cat, and um, I spend a lot of time uh Organizing in several capacities. Um, academically, I organize uh, the graduate student workers at my university. We've been trying to get our union recognized for several years now. Um, I also do some more disability organizing, um, as well as um, I've just kind of moved into scientific um kind of advocacy as far as um, mental health goes and um, working on kind of organizing issues, uh, labor issues in uh, early career researchers in STEM. So I'm kind of all over the place. I love it. And uh, I believe you wrote or described yourself as, you know, a PhD student in chemical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh, and you know, for people who don't understand, like, what is chemical engineering with me, uh, could you describe that? And just, uh, you know, you mentioned you love the computational aspect, so could you kind of describe a little bit more, like, 
what does that mean and what's involved? Sure. Yeah, so chemical engineering is kind of a, a catch-all. We do a lot of stuff. Um, you can think of us as chemists mm -hmm. who like math, maybe, or um, people who have interests in energy or biology um, or, you know, clean solutions uh, or just straight chemistry and things like that. So we have a really wide range of fields. So I'm in the more biological side. Um, and we kind of organize ourselves by being experimental or computational. So experimental are people who work in labs, um, what you would typically think of as like a scientist or an engineer. Um, but there's this new group of us who work computationally and um, we try to make models or develop algorithms to understand um, systems. So in my case, um, I work with um, respiratory viral infections like uh, the flu and like COVID-19. Uh, and I try to develop models to understand how it works, um, develop new drug targets, or understand um, the mechanisms of how maybe the virus is able to um, take over and infect lots of cells. Um, and so yeah, chemical engineering is a very um, kind of wide, wide field. And um, I entered it because I was in high school and we make high schoolers decide what to do with their lives, right? Um, and I liked chemistry, but um, I was pretty worried. I'm, so I'm, for reference, I'm in a wheelchair. I weigh about 50 pounds. I'm very small and I'm very weak. Um, and the kind of physical demands of lab work don't align with my physical abilities at all. Um, no amount of adaptation is probably going to make that happen. Um, and I went into chemical engineering because I liked chemistry, but said, like, I'd rather be at a desk or, you know, doing some kind of mathematical version of it. Um, and that's kind of how I got into it. And um, I, I didn't really know at the time how... How many doors I could open by staying computational? Um, I kind of thought that I was maybe going to be doomed to, you know, some kind of desk job at like a factory or something for a long time. But um, by chance, I met a uh, with a professor who told me that there's this whole field of computational science, um, and that really opened this door for me for. Um, you know, different applications I could have um, with my love of science. And um, so that's kind of how I ended up here on a very uh, roundabout path. You know, you've described that there are different ways of pursuing your interests in a way that works for you. Uh, 
So, you know, what is your advice for any kind of disabled student, no matter what kind of disability they have, that's thinking about engineering or, you know, going into science in general and kind of not sure yet about, like, can I do this? Or, like, you know, how to get started? Like, what's kind of your advice to people who are kind of questioning or just kind of unsure of themselves? Yeah, um, I think a big part of my journey has been, um, I, I have this like motto that I that I try to live by, um, which is like, what do you need? And asking for what you need has been one of the most important things that I've found in life, but particularly in school. Um, and in the academic space, because there isn't, I guess the problem is there isn't representation. Um, a, I've never had a visibly disabled role model in academia. Um, and as a result, there isn't much offered as far as, you know, people who are readily available to provide things that you need without asking. Um, and asking is really tough. And I, I wish that we didn't have to learn to be so resilient and to ask for things that we need, but um, it really is important. Um, for example, accommodations in the classroom. Um, I didn't use them until the middle of my undergraduate career um, because internalized ableism had told me that I, I didn't need them, um, that I was smart and that I didn't need any help and that I was just gonna do it, um, which just wasn't true. I don't write fast. I get very tired, I need to take breaks. Um, and when I finally got those accommodations, um, I, it, I felt so much more confident and sure of myself um, because I had what I needed to survive and to succeed. Um, and, and I know a lot of people who are in the same boat where they are not feeling like they deserve to go to the disability office to get accommodations or to ask their professors um, for help in some way. Um, but it's it's really, you deserve to have that. If you want to be there, you have every right to be there and you have every right to the adaptations and the accessibility that you need um, to succeed just like everyone else. Um, and I guess one example that I would like to share because I think this was really beneficial to me and I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. Um, as a engineer, um, we had requirements in undergrad for labs that we had to take. And I, this was kind of in the, the later half of my undergraduate uh, career, but so I was feeling a little more confident. I said, I can't do this. I don't want to just have a lab partner because it's not fair to either of us. Um, for them to be doing the physical work of two people. 
Um, and so my university hired um, a student who had already taken the class to basically be a, a machine for me. And I would say, measure out two mils of hydrochloric acid or whatever. And they would do it. And they would follow my direct instructions. I was learning exactly as I would have if I was physically doing it. Um, but I was safe and I was um, able to focus on the science instead of if I was able to do it and if people were upset with me and if I was in the way or whatever. Um, it, it just removed those barriers. Um, and so I, I would really like to see more of that, more understanding of, um, of what accessibility means and how we can provide it um, and how able people can provide it um, easily and, you know, without much fuss um, in their classrooms. Yeah, and I think this is uh, even more of an issue in terms of graduate education, because I think, you know, at the graduate level, I think that pressure is really on, and, uh, you know, accommodations sometimes unfairly are seen as, you know, shortcuts or special treatment. Right. And, you know, the idea that uh, this will take away from your qualifications and, like, you know, the supposed requirements that you need mm-hmm. in order to you know, complete your education. And, you know, people don't see how accommodations are just so necessary and it doesn't make you any less than non-disabled students. And I think, you know, like you mentioned about internalized ableism, you know, that's where the that's where the tension is, where you want to keep proving that, well, you know you're just as good, but you just are worried about how other people will perceive you just by asserting your rights to have right. accommodations. Um, you know, since you are in grad school, and, you know, we talked earlier before we uh, started recording that you want to get into academia. After you get your PhD, uh, you know, academia is still a pretty ableist place. It is should do pretty, pretty racist and sexist and yes. classist. Uh, so, you know, what do you hope to kind of like tear down and smash, you know, as an academic in terms of really creating more space for disabled people in academia? Right. Yeah, the the trend recently um, is the diversity, right? They they want to tout numbers of um, percentages of students that are enrolled or percentage of faculty, um, and the focus is not on the equity. It's mm-hmm. on getting people there, and then the support is non-existent. Um, and to me, I mean, that's not acceptable, first of all. Um, but to me, I, I hope to foster it in, in spaces that I occupy. And I hope to kind of spread that kind of 
mindset um, that, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, there are lots of things that we can individually do as far as uh, mentoring and, um, you know, working with marginalized communities in our, in our community. Um, and, but there's also things we can do institutionally, right? Um, I'm a big fan of, of, of taking lots of people's power collectively and, and challenging institutional standards. Um, you know, what are, what is your, um, your institution, whether it's a school or your company or whatever community um, has power, what are they doing and how can we um, kind of force them to listen? And collective power is the way to do that, um, which is why I'm so committed to unionizing academic spaces um, because that is a huge way to get the protections and really the quality of, of life that we need um, to focus on doing our academic work. You know, I first came across your work uh, when I saw on Twitter last fall a piece that you wrote for uh, City Lab about your experiences encountering robots on campus. And can you describe these robots who are created by Starship Technologies and, you know, what, what you wrote about in your article? Sure. So last year, over the summer, um, there were these small robots there. They sort of resemble large white coolers on wheels with a little flag that sticks up. Um, they're about like mid-sized dog-sized, um, if that's helpful. And um, they popped up over not this summer, but the last summer, with a human that was driving them around. And they were unmarked, um, just kind of, you could tell that like the person was controlling the robot, but it was pretty unclear what it was doing. And then uh, when the semester started in the fall 2019, uh, the robots were suddenly by themselves. And it became clear that they were autonomous food delivery vehicles. Um, so basically the school employed or contracted this company who targets universities across the US um, to release these food delivery robots that um, will deliver food from the campus dining services to essentially wherever you are um, on an app. And um, they kind of caused like a, a an interesting, they're like an interesting social thing because they're a little bit cute in that they kind of like bebop around and they're always in the way. Um, they stop randomly. Uh, if you stand in front of them, now they yell at you. 
but um, they used to just kind of stop and wait, um, and people would kind of play with them, and um, they were just generally all over the place. And one day, I was waiting to cross a pretty busy street. It's like a four-lane um, street on our campus, um, and there was a group of people waiting in front of me to cross the street. And when the light turned, I couldn't see through the people because I'm at like waist height. But they started walking, so I started crossing the street behind them. And when I got maybe halfway across, some of them kind of cleared out, and I realized that one of these robots was sitting directly in the curb cut, about one or two inches from the edge of the street. But it wasn't moving, um, and it was a one-person wide curb cut. And so I walked up to it, and I kind of looked at it and was like, okay, well, I have some robotics training. I understand if I sit in front of it or if I stop, it's definitely not going to move. Um, it's not going to back up because it doesn't have sensors, so I can't sit in front of it. But... I'm in the street and I'm blocked, so I needed to make a decision whether I should cross back across four lanes of traffic or what, because the light was changing back to green for the cars, and I panicked. I was super freaked out, and I kind of like swerved around it a couple times, and it still didn't move, so I ended up hopping the curb next to it uh, where the ramp isn't a ramp anymore. And so that's not great for me. It is painful, first of all. Um, I could get stuck, I think, fairly easily. Um, and also, like, that ramp is there for me. And so I just sat and looked at it for a minute. I was, like, incredulous at what was happening to me. And... I turned around and kept walking, and later on, you know, I crossed another street. I looked back. People were crossing that intersection again, and it was just sitting in the same spot, not moving, and I was just beside myself because I was endangered by something that didn't even know that I was there um, in a sentient way and didn't understand that I was a human and that I needed to get onto that ramp. And so um, I walked back to the coffee shop I was going to, and I screamed inside the coffee shop at my friend so loud that I scared an entire coffee shop. Um, and then I was like, I have to do something about this um, because it's just, it's going to keep happening if I don't. Um, and so... I wrote some angry tweets, um, as I love to do, and I tagged the university and the, um, the company and was like, what are you going to do about this? Um, and that day, the company and the, the university decided to hold them off the streets um, and kind of investigate what had happened to me. Um, and so kind of where my 
my article comes in is that from that day on, for the next few days, my life was kind of a whirlwind. Um, I it blew up on Twitter essentially, and people were sharing all kinds of examples of the same robot in different campuses or different robots that functioned very similarly,、mm-hmm. doing essentially the same thing to them.、Um, and at the same time,、um, the news was calling me because I had caused kind of a ruckus in the city,、um, and the company was calling me, trying to、um, explain to me what had happened and explain kind of their commitment to our community. Um, at large, I guess, and explained to me that they had already talked to visually impaired、um, focus groups and that they had had no problems with it, and so they were confused, I guess, at why I was so upset.、Um, and you know, it was kind of this whirlwind where I was put in the middle of this conversation that really. Hadn't been happening prior to that. It became very clear to me that I was now the expert because I was the first person to bring it to the public's attention,、um, which I didn't intend to be. But、um, it was just—it was wild. And then、um, the next day,、um, the company had kind of retracted their apology. Because they said that they viewed the video, and that I went around it, which I did,、um, but by not really s- supplying any details and not giving me a chance to say anything, I guess、um, the internet turned into a very scary place where I was demonized for for ruining something good, for lying, quote unquote.、Um, And you know, I woke up to hundreds of ableist comments and memes, and、um, calling me by name、uh, in in threads and things. And、um, you know, it was just a complete one eighty that really made me doubt the way that I felt about this experience and doubt my validity in in claiming that. I was in danger, and that there was ableism at play here,、um, and yeah, it, it was it was a wild experience.、Um, but out of that came this kind of op-ed that I got to write, among、um, some other things, where、um, I basically make a case for why we have to kind of make more ethical design decisions. And why we need to have representation in the tech industry, which is kind of、um, very quickly headed for a future that is leaving us behind. Yeah, what do you mean by? Ethical design. You know, one of the things that you experience, which is so unfortunate, is that 
you know, it took you experiencing mm-hmm. danger to have to, you know, speak out about it. Right. And the fact that you were gaslit, basically, and yeah. seen as an enemy of progress, you know, I feel like this is another thing that's really icky about the tech industry is the fact that there can't be critique. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow pointing out things that are super problematic are not seen as, you know, oh, we didn't even realize this, or oh, that's, you know, there's a lot of lip service towards, like, diversity and, like, right. you know, commitment to the disability community, but there's no actions in place to actually make that happen. So, you know, what do you mean by ethical design? And, uh, you know, can you speak to kind of like the the ideal situation for the development of, you know, tech and other products and services that would be more inclusive and less ableist? Yeah, I think... There's a lot of space to make progress um, in different areas of kind of the tech industry, um, but also in the way we view tech in our lives and the way that we, um, kind of the path that we have um, set out as the only path to getting into the tech industry. Um, And so I guess when I say ethical design, I really mean thinking about ethics in all parts of this equation, right? So um, I, I think about who's in the tech industry right now, um, not me, right? Or at least not at the rate that I would like to be. Um, people who look like me are much less likely to be working um, at big name tech companies and it really presents an issue when user design, um, which is kind of human-centered, is solely performed by able white males. Um, because when we think about users, we think about ourselves first. And I always think about how early in the process of designing for example, Starship Robots, um, I would have flagged them and been like, hey, this is going to be a problem for a lot of people. And maybe this is my like my internalized ableism again, but there's part of me that, that can't blame them to a certain extent where um, I don't want people to be responsible for foreseeing the experience of someone they've never met or someone they don't know or they don't know exists um, because we shouldn't be responsible for that. But knowing that is not an excuse and you know everything that we do needs to be actively working towards fixing that problem. And so I kind of see this as a a cycle where, um, yes, things are not good right now, but this is just a temporary issue 
that we can be constantly working to fix. I mean, when we frame it as temporary, we can think of it as, um, you know, as solution-based um, practices. So um, to me, I mean, anyone in tech wants to have better tech, right? But um, to me, as a disabled person, better tech is more accessible tech. And so when I'm thinking um, about design and the ethics of design, I'm thinking about how can my solutions be more accessible? Um, and not just that, but if I come up with a solution, is it actively inaccessible or is it actively harmful? Um, and asking these questions kind of early in the design process as opposed to late when we have to rely on um, the user giving feedback or in my case, not the user, but a bystander. And that user needs to rely on the company to, to, to listen, right? To, to do something about the problem. Yeah, it's a real issue of power dynamics. Where designers, developers are like this, you know, heterodormative, white male, not disabled, you know, people, but they're, you know, whether that's accurate or not. But I think they do uphold these norms in what they create. And that's, you know, users are often relegated as almost like a secondary or like afterthoughts. There's a, like their feedback and their expertise, and it's not just it's not just expertise based on lived experience. It's actual like technical expertise as well. Yeah. You know, today we're speaking on September twenty ninth. And you gave a talk actually today about the accessibility gap for tech users and developers. And, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about how we could narrow this gap? Because, you know, first of all, these two groups, you know, users and developers are not, you know, completely mutually exclusive. What are some of the suggestions on how to narrow gap and how to actually have more of a spirit of co-creation and co-design. I kind of give this disclaimer in my talk where, you know, I'm one girl um, and I don't know how to take, like change these institutions that are so ingrained in ableism, but I do have three guiding principles for the way that we can kind of speed this up. So the first I see as education has to be more accessible. I mean, this can be, um, we can make changes in our own communities based on what's available to us. So um, how can you help, um, you know, for my academics and researchers, how can your department be more accessible? Um, can it bring um, speakers in to talk about um, marginalized communities and their experience in your industry? Um, do you hire young students from marginalized communities that maybe don't get um, research 
uh, opportunities at the same rate, or from from institutions that are underrepresented, like HBCUs and things. Another question is like, do you have disabled role models? Um, because if your children see this normalized vision of disabled people in education and in tech, which is in some circles seen as kind of the the end all of, of academic um, experience, um, it's going to be normalized for them and they're going to grow up and maybe go into that field and think about these things. Um, so that's, education's a big part. Um, the second thing I always say is we have to diversify, but um, support and find real equity in that support. Supporting your coworkers, supporting marginalized communities in your designs and in the way, in the things that you put into public um, and bringing us in actively instead of waiting for us to complain about what's harmful to us. Um, so that's a huge one. And then last, this one's pretty controversial in our community, but um, we have to slow down. The tech industry is moving so fast that, you know, they're not thinking before they put things on the street. And now it's out there and it's too late. Um, and we can't necessarily take it back. And so it's, it's hard because we, we live and function in capitalism where the focus is on being first and making money and getting your name and your career um, in science and STEM. But when it comes at the expense of the marginalized, it's no longer good. It's not even neutral. It's just harmful and it's just unacceptable. And so, you know, if we, if we slow down and really think about the intention of our designs and of our work and how we can make it accessible physically and in education and understanding how it works, I think that's the best way for tech to really reach this kind of equitable state that I know it can eventually reach. So Emily, uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you. This was great. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. And all my community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes including text transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Emily on my website. The audio producer for this episode is me, Dallas Wong. Introduction by Latif McLeod. The music by Wilcher Sports Jam. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp thanks for listening and see you on the internet bye